0: You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and he calls us to preach the word in season and out of season. We pray that as you listen, you'll be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Um, Here at Cross and Crown we believe that the Bible is God's word to his people. And that means that when we are reading the Bible, we are hearing God speak. Today's Bible reading is from 1st Samuel chapter 16, verses 1 to 23. I will be reading from the CSB version. Please follow along in your own Bibles. Uh, the passage will also be displayed on the screen. The Lord said to Samuel, How long are you going to mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem because I have selected for myself a king from his sons. Samuel asked, How can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. The Lord answered, Take a young cow with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will let you know what you are to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate to you. Samuel did what the Lord directed and went to Bethlehem. When the elders of the town met him, they trembled and asked, Do you come in peace? In peace, he replied, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and said, Certainly the Lord's anointed one is here before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or his stature, because I have rejected him. Humans do not see what the Lord sees, for humans see what is visible, but the Lord sees the heart. Jesse called Abinadab and presented him to Samuel. The Lord hasn't chosen this one either, Samuel said. Then Jesse presented Shammah, but Samuel said, the Lord hasn't chosen this one either. After Jesse presented seven of his sons to him, Samuel told Jesse, the Lord hasn't chosen in any of these, Samuel asked him, are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, he answered, but right now he's tending the sheep. Samuel told Jesse, send for him, we won't sit down to eat until he gets here. So Jesse sent for him. He had beautiful eyes and a healthy, handsome appearance. Then the Lord said, anoint him, for he is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully on David from that day forward. Then Samuel set out and went to Ramah. Now the Spirit of the Lord had left Saul, and an evil spirit sent from the Lord began to torment him. So Saul's servants said to him, You see that an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord command your servants here in your presence to look for someone who knows how to play the lyre. Whenever that evil spirit from God comes on you, that person can play that lyre, and you will feel better. Then Saul commanded his servants, find me someone who plays well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, I have seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the lyre. He is also a valiant man, a warrior, eloquent, handsome, and the Lord is with him. Then Saul dispatched messengers to Jesse and said, Send me your son, David, who was with the sheep. So Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread, a wineskin, and one young goat and sent them by his son, David, to Saul. When David came to Saul and entered his service, Saul loved him very much, and David became his armour bearer. Then Saul sent word to Jesse, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favour with me. Whenever the Spirit from God came on Saul... David would pick up his lyre and play, and Saul would then be relieved, feel better, and the evil spirit will leave him.
1: God, we pray that um, you might calm our hearts and still our souls, that as we come before your word, we might be honest about our sin, about our disappointment about the hardships of life, and yet we pray, God, that as we look at your word, you might lift our eyes to see something remarkably spectacular, that you might help us see Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. Uh, we, all, we all face disappointment, don't we? That, that's powerful of course, in life. But, but I actually suspect that few disappointments cut as deep as the disappointment of being let down by someone you trust. That the boss we are hoped would look after our careers moves firm and leaves us behind, and we thought he'd take him with us. That the friend we hoped would stick with us through thick and thin gives up on our friendship. The man or woman we hoped would make us happy leaves us feeling wholly unsatisfied. And, and it's almost like this awful cycle, isn't it? Because every time we then trust someone, we think, oh, you're going to be different from the rest of them. It doesn't take too long to realize that everyone's just pretty much the same. They're not that different from each other. And high hopes give way to deep disappointment. How many of us then have also trusted Christian leaders, pastors, churches thinking that, oh yes, finally, this one's different. I can trust them, only to realize that actually they're not that different. And again, our high hopes give way to deep disappointment. And I wonder if you realize what happens at that moment. We face a temptation, don't we, to go one of two directions. We will either keep searching for that one person who won't let us down, that, that leader who, who can live up to our high hopes, or we'll stop trusting people altogether. In a church context, we'll withdraw from Christian fellowship and we'll say that I'm a Christian without a church. But friends, I want to suggest that that would actually be to make a grave mistake of thinking that just because the church is broken, that the church isn't worth it. Now, right throughout the Bible, right throughout history, God has always acted through broken leaders and sinful churches. And if, out of deep disappointment, we reject the church of God, we actually become a sheep without flock or shepherd. You know, right throughout the Bible, God has always ruled his people through human kings. In Deuteronomy 17, this is what he told Israel. He told them what kind of king that they should appoint. And this is how he sums it up. It should be the king the Lord your God chooses. A king under God. A king who will lead them to, to know, love, and live for the Lord. In fact, the great crisis that Israel faced just before the time of Samuel is captured in the final words of Judges. In those days... There was no king in Israel. Everyone did whatever seemed right to him. Moral and spiritual anarchy. Israel was a nation without a king, sheep without a shepherd. Now Israel needed a king. A king under God who would lead them to know, love and live for the Lord. And in 1 Samuel 8, if you remember two years ago, Israel was looking for that king. And that's great, isn't it? Israel needs a king. Israel doesn't have a king. Now, Israel's looking for a king, and we go, this is good. This is exactly what God intended. We have high hopes, don't we, that Israel will find that king of Deuteronomy 17. They'll find that king under God. But high hopes give way to deep disappointment. Because we very quickly realize that Israel is not looking for a king under God. They're looking for a king instead of God. Look at what they demand in verse 19 of 1 Samuel 8. This is what they say. We must have a king over us. Then we'll be like all the other nations. Our king will judge us. Our king will go out before us. And our king will fight our battles. It's as if Israel... Sees all the other nations with an outwardly impressive king, the strong, the slick, the shiny, the self sufficient, and they say, Yeah, I want a king just like that. And you think, So close, but yes, so far. The right desire, but for the wrong kind of person. And as an act of both judgment and grace, God says, Have what you want. Have what you want. So in chapter 9, he gives them a king. The sort of king that they want, the sort of king that anyone wants, he gives them Saul. And wouldn't you like to be described like this? An impressive young man. An impressive young man. There was no one more impressive among the Israelites than he. He stood a head taller than anyone else. Literally a cut above the rest. You see, if they wanted a king like the nation's, here he is. It's so that moment, right? You're looking for a friend. <laughs> and you see that person. Oh, yes, they're the best friend. That will never let me down. There's the perfect man or woman who will fulfill my every need. There's the impressive pastoral leader with a growing church that I want to follow. And you see, for Israel, it all started so well. It always does, doesn't it? Saul was exactly the sort of king you wanted to follow. But high hopes give way to deep disappointment. For just two chapters later, it all ends in tears. Ruled by pride, disobedience, and unrepentance, what did Saul do? He ruled not as the king under God that he should have been. He ruled as the king over God, instead of God. And so God rejected Saul as king. He he stripped him of authority. And in 1 Samuel 15, we read the final assessment of the once great king. This is what you wouldn't want to be said of you. Even to the day of his death, Samuel, the prophet, never saw Saul again. Samuel mourned for Saul, and the Lord regretted he had made Saul king over Israel. Do you see that contrast and how quick the great fall, right? You look at Saul in chapter 8 and we think, wow, how impressive. Just fast forward to chapter 15 and we think, how disappointing. That's where we find the prophet Samuel in chapter 16, mourning for Saul. A king of such high hopes has given way to such deep disappointment. Have you ever felt a disappointment like that? So now Israel faces the same temptation that we would, right? Will they keep searching for that one person who can bear their highest hopes? Or will they stop searching altogether? Will they withdraw, trust only themselves? And it's at that crucial point, that pivot point, that that God says to Samuel, hey, I still have the king I always intended for you. He's still there. He's just not what you might expect. He's not like the other kings. He's anything but Saul. In fact, if you see him, you might just be surprised. He's unlikely. He's unimpressive. But you can find him. You just have to look for the right things. You've got to look at the heart, and you've got to look for the spirit. you got to look for the heart and look for the spirit. And once you find this king, I want you to know that your highest hopes will never be disappointed. Here is the one king, the one man, the one person who will never, ever, ever let you down. So if we're to find this king, Samuel, start by looking at the heart. Start by looking at the heart. In verses 1 to 3, the Lord tells Samuel, stop mourning for Saul. Get ready and go to the house of Jesse of Bethlehem. Because you know what? My true king is there. And you think, Bethlehem, really? But I want you to notice one important detail. Unlike Saul, who Israel chose for themselves, no, this new king will be chosen by God. In verse 2, God says, i selected for myself a king. And he'll be, in verse 3, the one I indicate to you, not the one you indicate to me. Now, now pause for a moment, right? You'd think for a moment that if this king is anointed by God, if he's that special, if he's going to bear the weights of our highest hopes, then surely he'd be the most competent, the most capable, the most outwardly impressive. He'd be that one person in your internship who everyone knows on day one will get the grad offer. The smart, the slick, The savvy Scotch college boy who speaks like he's from Oxford, but has never left to Iraq. That's something what Samuel might expect to find in God's chosen king. So in verse 4, he sets out with great anticipation. Now the elders of Bethlehem, they're afraid, right? Because generally if a prophet turns up to town, it's not a good thing. You think he's come in judgment. But Samuel has a different mission. He's looking for God's chosen king, the king who won't be that great disappointment. So he arrives at Jesse's house. You can feel the anticipation. He calls for Jesse's sons to make a sacrifice to God. Now, now just put yourself in a different position for a moment, right? Imagine being Jesse. Wow, what an honor. You might not know that Samuel's here looking for a king, but you still know that this is pretty important my gosh, the great prophet Samuel has come to my home. And he wants to see my seven sons. This is good. This is very good. So like any proud father, Jesse says, boys, come, I want you to meet someone. And he lines them up. Now, I'm not a parent, so as Peter Adams said, I can say whatever I want. Uh, (laughs) We know that parents can't play favorites. But Let's face it, if you've got seven kids, at least one of them is not like the rest. <laughs> if the news is going to come into a story about your family, and they ask you, Jevin, please choose one of your non-existent children to be interviewed. Some part of you is going to assess your kids in your mind, no matter how much you love them. And you want to put your best foot forward, the most impressive, the most eloquent, the most photogenic son, the one who will do the family proud. So Samuel, he sees Eliab, Jesse's eldest, impressive in appearance and stature, tall. I mean, that's the sign of a good man. And in verse 6, he says, certainly the Lord's anointed one is here, right here before him. But God says, no, 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 no. Okay, 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 fine. If not Eliab, at least Abinadab, right? Right? He might not be as tall and good looking as older brother, but still not that bad, right? And God says, Not him either. Okay, sure. Um, we're now getting to the B team, but that's okay. Third is bronze. What about Shema? Verse 9 The Lord hasn't chosen this one either. Shema, not even him. Son after son after son. The answer is no, 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 no. And finally, Samuel asks, that it? Are these all the sons you have? You can hear the voice of disappointment. And Jesse says, well, there is still the youngest, but right now he's tending the sheep. There is one more, but really? I never put him in front of a camera. I love him, but I love him, Ryan. Right? His name's David. He's the youngest of all your children, the least significant in the ancient world, and he's a shepherd. Not exactly the stuff of kings. Not the sort of person you look at and think, aha, there's the one that I have high hopes of. The Lord says, choose him. Choose him. He's the one. There's something funny about that, but there's something actually really moving about that, isn't there? Because what if I'm like David? (laughs) What if I'm not like that? And here God says, I have set my heart on you. Isn't that beautiful? Even though David might have those beautiful eyes, the whole point of this passage is the truth of verse 7. Humans do not see what the Lord sees. For humans see what is visible, but the Lord sees the heart. You see, friends, it's, it's tragic. Israel chose Saul as a king based on what they saw on the outside, but high hopes gave way to deep disappointment. Samuel judged Jesse's sons based on what he saw on the outside. But God rejected every single one of them. Don't we do the same thing? Don't we judge people based on the externals rather than the internals? Don't we evaluate people on just what we see without actually knowing their heart? We look for friends, romantic partners, value different people based on superficiality and success. But we do not value the substance of their hearts. We look for a church based on the slickness of the service, the power of the preaching, but we are indifferent to its holiness and humility. God works by a very different value set. Have you realised that God often cares far more about the things that we actually don't care about. And He cares far less about the things that we often care far too much about. For what matters most to God is not our heads, what we know, nor our hands, what we do, but our hearts, who we are. He's looking for hearts that are humble, hearts like Hannah's, all the way back in 1 Samuel 2. For all of us can take pride in what we know or what we do, but humility maketh the man. That's what God is looking for. That's what he calls Samuel and us to look for. A king with a humble heart. But not just that. I want you to notice that he also wants him to look for the Spirit. Look for the Spirit. I want you to notice what happens when David is anointed as king. In verse 13, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully on him from that day forward. God put his divine stamp of approval on David, his divine presence, his divine blessing, his divine favor. He gave David of his very own spirit. He gave David of himself. But I want you to notice where the Spirit came from. Verse 14 tells us that it left Saul. And we think, what a disappointment. That the Spirit of God would leave that once great king. That God would take away his approval, withdraw his presence, remove his blessing, revoke his favor. You see, Saul still holds the title of a king, but he is a king without a crown. Without power. Without authority, as God removes his spirit of blessing, in verse 14, he now sends a spirit of evil on Saul. Now, let me be clear this isn't saying that God sends evil spirits or that God is morally responsible for evil. It's saying that because of Saul's sin, God isn't just removing his blessing, he's sending his judgment. You see, friends, there are only two types of kings in the Bible, and there are only two types of people in the world. Those who have the spirit of the Lord, and those who bear the spirit of judgment. And it's a stark question, isn't it? That which spirit is in you? God's spirit of blessing, or his spirit of judgment? You see, friends, for Saul, it's clear. The spirit has left the throne room, and Saul is tormented day and night. In verse 15, his servants suggest a form of what seems to be spiritual music therapy. Someone who can play the lie to alleviate your anguish. And in verse 18, a young man says this, look at what is seen. I have seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the lyre. He's also a valiant man, eloquent, handsome, and more importantly than anything else, the Lord is with him. The Lord is with him. Friends, that's the decisive factor. Not David's strength, eloquence, appearance, or good though they are. No, it's God's presence. It's God's spirit. The servant sees David for who he really is. Not a child nor a shepherd, but one in whom the spirit of God lives. Do you see what's going on here? By, by external standards, David is not a likely nor impressive king. But when we look for the spirit, when we look inside, when we look at the heart, we see David for who he really is. So David enters Saul's service. And verse 21 says, Saul loved him very much. And David became his armour bearer. You see, David gained Saul's favour... Because he bears God's spirit. He becomes Saul's right-hand man, his most trusted assistant. But do you notice the irony of what's happening here, right? Saul is this disappointment and dethroned king. He sits on the throne but has lost his crown. And even though this shepherd boy has been anointed as his successor, David still humbly chooses to serve him. Can I tell you, I can't begin to imagine how hard that must be. If I feel disappointed by someone, I'm not going to humbly serve them. Yet that's the humble heart that God seeks. But I want you to notice as well the contrast between David and Saul. Saul is the king. Saul still sits on the throne. Saul still has servants at his disposal, an army at his command. On the outside, Saul still has it all. And David has nothing. Still a kid from Bethlehem. Still a shepherd tending the sheep. Still a servant and not a king. But notice, even though on the outside, David has nothing. He has the one thing that truly matters. He has the only thing that really matters. And even though on the outside, Saul has everything in the world, he lacks the one thing that truly matters. The only thing that truly matters. The Spirit of God. The Spirit of God. You see, friends, at the end of the day, you could be as impressive, powerful, successful, and eligible as Saul. But if you don't have the Spirit, you don't have anything at all. You could be the king of the world, but unless you have God's blessing and spirit, we are nothing at all. High hopes give way to deep disappointments, don't they? And with the deep disappointment of Saul and the deep disappointment of, let's face it, our lives, God is telling us, do not despair. Don't look a man or a woman or a mere human being. No, no, they will disappoint you no matter how well-intentioned they may even be. Look for a king you can trust. Look at his heart. Look for the Spirit. Friends, can I um, end by asking us to reflect on three questions? Three questions. Firstly, how do you see Jesus? How do you see Jesus? If you're not a Christian, you might not have that much of an impression of him, to be honest. A Jewish rabbi who lived for 33 years and was executed a criminal. You know what, by all external standards, Jesus was far less impressive than David ever was. And if it's not inappropriate for me to say, in the eyes of the world, Jesus was a loser. He's the last person that you'd ever want to be near. And gosh, if you pinned all your hopes on him, can I say that when he was killed, surely your high hopes would have turned into deep disappointment. I mean, what kind of king allows himself to be mistreated, slandered and murdered? Surely you look at Jesus and think, gosh, I've just wasted the last three years of my life. What a disappointment. But remember, humans see what is visible But the Lord sees the heart. And can I tell you that Jesus' heart is gentle and lowly. Kind and loving. A heart that moves towards the least and the lowly. There never has and never will be a king like him. For in his heart is the Spirit of God. The Spirit which makes Jesus God's own Son. And by the Spirit, Jesus was crowned as the greater David, the King who will never disappoint us. And it's actually in the very moment of his death, the very moment where you'd expect all of us to be most deeply disappointed at his failure, it's then, believe it or not, that he fulfilled our highest of hopes. For it's in his disappointing death that he forgave our sins. He saved us from hell. He defeated death. He delivered us from judgment. He... Was in that moment everything we ever hoped for and more. But he did it through an unlikely and unimpressive death. But can I say, if all you see in Jesus is an unlikely and unimpressive person, then you will have missed the point entirely. (laughs) Now look at his heart, look for the spirit. You'll see him for who he really is, the saviour and the king of the world. The truth is, all of us, right, we're all looking for someone to follow in life. It could be a husband or a wife, a best friend, a mentor, but at the end of the day, no one, no one can bear the weight of our highest hopes. In the end, even the best intention of them will crumble under the weight of our hopes. Don't look for a king among mere mortals. Look to the cross. Look to the Lord Jesus. He alone is the king. And only Jesus can bear the weight of our highest hopes. He is the king in whom we will never be disappointed. How do you see Jesus? Secondly, How do you see each other? How do you see each other? You know what? If on the outside, Jesus is an unlikely and unimpressive king, then can I suggest you'd probably expect to see the same reflected here among us. You read 1 Corinthians 1, the Apostle Paul is not mincing words. Not many of you were wise from a human perspective. Not many powerful. Not many of noble birth. Churches are full of unimpressive people. Right? Why? Because an unlikely and unimpressive king died for them. He died for you. And he died for me. I wonder, when you gather here each Sunday, when you meet in your, in your small groups, when, when you catch up over coffee and see each other, how do you see each other? What do you see in each other? What determines whether you will cross the hall and talk to someone on a Sunday? In my sin, it is most tempting to look for someone just like me. Or to look for someone who's an easier conversation partner. Someone who I can enjoy my Sunday with. Someone who's outwardly impressive. Impressive. Do we judge each other based on how we look, what we wear, what we do, how much we earn? Or do we look at each other's hearts, each other's humility, our gentleness, our holiness, and our love? But even more than that, I wonder when you look around here on a Sunday and you see someone at church, or whatever else there might be there. Do you see the Spirit of God? Do you see the Spirit of God? Because the same Spirit who, who anointed David, believe it or not, is the same Spirit who lives in you and lives in me and lives in each other, all of us who trust in Jesus. You might look down the hall and see that brother or sister, and every part of you, humanly speaking, might not want to go there and engage with them, might not want to love them because you see the outside. But I wonder, do you realize that they bear the same spirit as David and us? They bear God's stamp of approval. And if God approves of them, how could I not? We must be a church that looks not at status but for the Spirit. Finally, let me ask, how do you see yourself? How do you see yourself? So often, uh, we judge ourselves, don't we? For better or for worse, through the lens of success, stature, and status. How much I've achieved, how handsome or beautiful I look, thank you, that's okay. Okay how many friends that I have. And if you look at that, and you go, you know what? Got a pretty good job. Not a nine, but maybe a 7.5. Got enough friends. Not so bad. Be careful. High hopes give way to deep disappointments. Because in the end, we might have everything. But unless we have the Spirit, we actually have nothing at all. But some of us might look at ourselves through those same three things, success, stature, status, and we might then look at ourselves in the mirror and go, gosh, I don't have any of that. Job's okay, but it's not great. Not the best looking guy in the world. If I'm really honest, I just have no idea what to say to people. I know that I can be a bit difficult around others. I go, then what am I worth? The world will tell me I'm worth nothing at that point. David was nothing. We look at David and kind of go, wow, he's great. I'd love to be that. What God wants you to know this day is this: If you have the Spirit, you have all you will ever need. If you have the Spirit, you will have all you will ever need. And can I offer this one observation that the danger in life might be to have too much of the externals? Because part of us goes right. Well, okay, you know what? Let's do this. I'll have it all. I'll have the Spirit but I'll also have the success, the stature, and uh, the sociability. Why can't I just have it all? To which God would say, be very careful. Because if you have everything else, you may just neglect the thing that matters most. Never forget, if you have the Spirit, you have all you will ever need. So how do you see yourself? Please don't look at yourself through the lens of success, stature, or status. It will drive you to pride or despair. Look for the Spirit of God. Many of us will experience a deep disappointment in other people. We'll be disappointed in our friends, disappointed in our marriages, disappointed in our work, and disappointed in our church. I know, I've already disappointed many of you. And if I haven't yet, I, I will, I will. I can promise that. And I'm sorry. I mean that. There is only one person who will never fail you. There is only one person you can have the highest hopes of and never be truly disappointed. But he's not whom you expect. He's unlikely and unimpressive. But when you look at Jesus... See him for who he really is and realize this amazing reality that if this unlikely and unimpressive man is God's spirit filled king, then I can be an unlikely and unimpressive spirit filled child. Friends, our hopes in Jesus are never high enough, and in him, it will never disappointed at all. Can I pray? God, we repent of the many times that we judge one another on the basis of the visible but do not see each other's hearts as you see them. And we are sorry, God, for judging your son, the Lord Jesus, by his weakness, frailty, and foolishness, but not loving him as our saviour and our king. We turn to you we repent of our sin and we see in jesus the deep love that the lord has for the least and lowly for people just like us and we know that in him our highest hopes can be satisfied and we will never be disappointed at all may we see this world may we see ourselves May we see each other and may we see your Son through the lens of your Spirit
0: and for his great glory we pray. Amen.